Boogie, tell me what you know about public schools and segregation. Um, what do I know about public schools and segregation? It's a pop quiz, Bo. I know that public um, public schools get funded by their property taxes. Um, so that seems to matter. I know that based off the history of segregation and redlining that I'd imagine that there are big racial divides. Therefore, there's that that stuff probably right shows up in how um, certain public schools with certain demographics, racial demographics, are funded and affect the quality of said education. I feel like I said a lot of things, but didn't answer your question. Well, okay, in the first like one minute of the, <laughs> I just feel like in the one minute of our podcast, you have gone very deep, and I was just like you know hoping for a few few words, but. You know, that's what happens when you ask a PhD, uh, you know, a question. They just pontificate. I appreciate Mm -hmm, that. mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Earn that degree, baby. Hey, listeners. Welcome back to Flesh and Bold. On this episode, we're going to be talking about educational segregation. You know, many of us know that in 1954, Four, the Supreme Court ruled that segregated public schools is unconstitutional. And that was the landmark Brown versus Board of Education. Like a lot of people know those words together, like Brown versus Board. So how come we're still not, you know, talking about it today? Do we think it's over? It ended like that happened in the 50s and 60s and now we're done or we're still working on it now? And according to what you just said, it sounds like it still might be an issue now. You know, I was really impressed because there's some other landmark cases that I hadn't heard about. And hopefully we'll talk about um, one of them a little later in the podcast, but Milken versus Bradley, Mm. which I hadn't heard about. And this other really, really, really interesting case, it was about segregation at the graduate school level. It was Missouri um, X rel um gains versus canada do you know about this case it's very not at all please do more okay i'm gonna tell you about this case because i was like oh this is so interesting so actually in the 30s so before the 50s and brown versus board and before uh, milkian versus bradley lloyd Gaines is a black man who applied for admission to the university of missouri school of law which at the time was the only law school in missouri and so lloyd Gaines applied to the law school and they rejected him and so some might say like okay well maybe he wasn't qualified and all the things that people that think we live in a meritocracy would say but he was rejected and instead um he was they offered to subsidize his tuition at a historically black law school mm. or non-segregated law school in another state. So they're like, okay, we think you're smart enough to go to law school, just not our law school. Mm. And what's interesting is the NAACP said, uh-uh, no way. Like you need to, you need to fight this. So the NAACP actually supported him and they rejected the University of Missouri School of Law's order, like their offer. And he said, okay, this is discrimination. So he went all all the way up to the Supreme Court in the 30s, Nev, and he won his case in December 1938. So Mm. fascinating. And the ruling was, okay, you need to accept him into your law school. And the other kind of option was they had to provide a school um, in state education that was like separate but equal to Black people. But they really pushed that they offer him admission. But they said, oh, hell no. So quickly, the Missouri legislator like founded a new separate but equal, although everyone knew it was unequal, law school for African-Americans. And what's even more interesting and quite scary is that the NAACP was getting ready to file another appeal and say, yeah, you created another law school, but it's separate and quite unequal and it's not up to par. And in March 1939, just a couple months after he won his case, Lloyd Gaines went missing after he won the lawsuit. Like never heard from again, never seen again. And of course, because there was no plaintiff for this case, um, for the desegregation lawsuit, 
it was dismissed. And it wasn't until like another like 10, 15 years did the University of Missouri School of Law actually admit an African-American student. Mm. So when we talk about like segregation and the case for like thinking about what schools look like today, why we're still fighting these battles. I mean, these battles didn't just start yesterday. And not only are they, you know, a cry for like equal opportunities, equal education, but like people were you know, killed and kidnapped and probably he was murdered for his activism on this. So it's a really, really important issue. What do you think? Girl, I'm shocked. You like, wait, you, this is a, you just turned our podcast into like a crime series podcast. It took a quick left turn that I did not see coming. That's what I think. (laughs) <laughs> I just like never heard of this case. And when we were talking about education and segregation and like, you know, it just makes me like, wow, you know, I, I don't know all our history. And like when we really sit and think about it, it's like, damn, people went missing because they were just trying to go to law school. Right. Like they were just trying to desegregate. And, you know, the person probably admitted like 10, 15 years after he went missing may not have even known. Right. Like this is the history People literally died, went missing, fought all the way to the Supreme Court in the 30s so that you could have opportunities. And still, they're not always there. The the fact that you're sharing like this historical case and story with me, what's not lost is the idea, or not the idea, the phenomenon of folks trying to erase this education, right, within certain states. And... So I think like I'm listening to you share how we didn't grow up or you were unaware of um, this case and how folks are probably even going to become more and less aware of cases like this one and other ones due to like um, the um, discourse around teaching folks history and quote unquote CRT. Um, so I, I think that's saddening because I, I think it's important for us to think about those things and consider um, as we continue to combat uh, inequity in our current educational landscape. Absolutely. And I mean, that case is from the like late 1930s, but we have cases that we can talk about that are, you know, Um, from the 50s and 60s and cases that are even more recent than that. And you, as soon as I ask you, what do you know, right, about public schools and segregation, you like hit us with the one-two punch, like you knew exactly, right? And so I'd love for us to dive into what it looks like today. We can always go back and talk more about history. But one of the things um, that you brought up is like funding, right? I think what's interesting is, you know, um, NPR did a article or report on segregation and in education. And it's interesting because they were saying that the U.S. student um, body is like the most diverse, like so highly diverse, um, more than it's probably ever been. But yet public schools are like the most segregated than they've mm. ever been around racial, ethnic and socioeconomic um, lines. Um, they discussed like a report that was reported. Uh, released in 2022 in July from the U.S. Government Accountability Office, which stated that more than one-third of students, which is like 18 million students, attended the same race ethnicity schools during the 2020-2021 school year. So a third, 33% of students, are going to the same race ethnicity schools as they identify. So it's just very fascinating. The more diverse we're, we're growing, we're still super duper segregated and you don't have to go back to the thirties to see that still. Mm, mm. Can you, do you mind saying that a different way for me? Uh, I was uh, having a hard time. So throw those numbers at me again. Yeah. So this report that was released by the U S government accountability office found that like a third of students, so 18.5 million attended schools where it was pretty much homogenous. Like they went Mm. to this, a school that all the or most of the students looked like them. Mm. Um, so there wasn't a lot of integration of different races in their mm. schools. So 33% 
you know, attended the same race or ethnicity schools during that 2020-2021 school year. Mm. Very interesting. So you're not getting a whole bunch of mixing with respect to different backgrounds or races or probably even religions and certainly not socioeconomic statuses. Mm. Um, And so, you know, people might ask like, you know, why, why is this an issue? There's so many issues with this. And one, because people like Lloyd Gaines literally fought and lost their lives so that they could have you know, the same equal opportunities and access to education. So there should be like some ability to go to whatever school you want to go to. But the fact of the matter is we know that um, schools that host a minoritized student body, so have more racial and ethnic minorities in their schools, you know, receive less funding. And I think that's some of the stuff that you were talking about. So I hope you go into that uh, a bit more is because they have more, they have less resources available to them. You know, most of these schools, you know, are um, receiving less funding based on kind of the geography and the history of redlining. So I don't know if you, you know, you have more to say about that or more thoughts about like how these schools are funded, but I think it's really fascinating that we tied public school resources and funding and education to property and geography. Yeah, um, I wasn't going to say more about it, but I can. Um, so, <laughs> Well, if you're not, I have a question for you anyway, because, you know, I'm full of questions today. Uh, let's, I, I, I pick truth. Let's go with your question. Okay, you're feeling froggy? Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so you know I was saying like a third of students, you know, go to schools where they attend like of the same race and ethnicity as themselves. Mm-hmm. Guess where most of these schools um, like reside, like where most of the schools where students go to the same race or ethnic group. Like I will say from a geography standpoint, do you think it's the North or the South or the East Coast or the Midwest or the West Coast? Oh, Where do you think it is? Like where does it happen most often? What region? Yeah, what region? Okay. <laughs> Don't laugh, but <laughs> I'm going to guess... My guess is based off of uh, cinematic universes only um, (laughs) and not from knowledge. And that makes me guess the West Coast. (laughs) Say more about that guess. Yeah. Like if you've ever seen like a a lot, I feel like a lot of educational movies from like the 90s and 2000s were shot on like the West, like a West Coast setting. Oh, now I'm going to change my answer. Because I was going to say, I felt like race relations were always big in there. Like Freedom Riders and that movie where Coolio sung the song, <laughs> the backdrop, whatever. I feel like they Dangerous had like, racial issues. Yeah, I think so. I don't know, girl. I was like three. Um, <laughs> uh, but now that I think about it, they would have been going to schools with different races. Oh, yeah. And I think California, part of that storyline was they had integration. So let me, let me, let me stop. Let me stop. Let me, <laughs> let me, let me rethink. I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with the Midwest or like Mid-Atlantic. Wow. Yes. I thought you would say, or most people would probably think the South. Um, And if you said the South, you're wrong. But Midwest and the Northeast, which was a total shocker to me, but makes sense because I feel like I've lived in those places and I have seen it, but I just assumed it was this way everywhere. Um, it's really, really, really interesting. And, and a lot of people, especially East Coast people, right, want to point their nose up at the South, but um, in many areas, the South is more integrated than what we see in the Northeast mm. and the South and in, in the Midwest. And I was wondering, like, why is that true? Right. And um, mm-hmm. some of the things we see is that where the Midwest tends to draw these really interesting school district lines um, places are in the Northeast as well. Places like in the South usually follow county lines. Their school districts kind of fo- follow the county mm. lines. And because of that, um, the school districts are uh, bigger, essentially. And so because they're bigger, 
they tend to be more equal with respect to funding. And obviously that's not always true, but the more people you have like funding a school district, the, the, the more equitable it tends to be with allocating this goes to this school, this goes to this school, this goes to this school, because you have more people in that district. If you draw these small little lines around these certain communities to try to keep people out, then you end up with very disparate um, school districts. One, ones that tend to be white and wealthier, leaving a concentration of minoritized um, individuals in another school district. So as you draw more and more school districts, they tend to be whiter and wealthier. So I was really happy to know that the South, um, they appear to be more equal because of the way that they've drawn their school districts. Just very, very interesting. Yeah, that's wild. I'm not going to lie. My guess, I assumed that like it's one of those guesses where you know what the obvious answer is, so you guess something else. And so that's part of the reason why I didn't guess the South, but I'm still like a little surprised that... Uh, um, that there is like a big enough difference. Um, but you know, us growing up in the Midwest, I think it becomes, um, it becomes evident, I I guess, just in life, especially if folks have resources, they're able to send their kids to other schools. And then I think about, you know, the, uh, white flight and things like the great migration that happened, um, and I still think like when folks, black folks and folks of color moved because of the great migration, they, it's not like they could have moved and lived anywhere. <laughs> and so I wondered if there were still remnants of that, that were felt in places like the Midwest and mid-Atlantic. So yeah, makes sense, unfortunately. Yeah. And I think, yeah. you know, the process that I described a little bit earlier where school districts break off. It's called um, district succession. And again, this is when schools break off Mm. from an existing school district. And I was just thinking about our upbringing, how many kind of suburban break offs there might have been. Yeah. So essentially, these school districts break off and they're like, we need more control locally. Our students are different. We need to make our own school district. And again, these districts tend to be whiter and wealthier, leaving, you know, like, what you were saying about the property taxes and the funding that goes towards um, schools, like it further isolates the um, the districts that don't have as well resource schools is really interesting um, that we've decided as a country that schools should be funded based on geography, especially, especially when we know what you said about residential segregation and how um, we could go so deep on this, but essentially how you, how we know, like, right, property, property taxes are based on home values. And we already know that certain areas, Black, Hispanic, right, areas are devalued. The property is devalued. Their homes are devalued. When we talk about, um, when we talk about, like, how people are getting different um, appraisal values based on who they think the homeowners are or what pictures they have on the wall. And then historically, with respect to redlining, who could even live in certain communities? And already we've decided that um, those those property values are absolutely tied to how much resources, how, how many resources and the funding that a school gets. It's just, it's a very, um, it's a very interesting choice that we've made. For sure. Cue our episode, uh, Home Ownership, Will We Ever Stop Dreaming and Wake Up um, <laughs> to listen more <laughs> about some of those concepts that you talked about over. And one of the things that I was thinking of when you were speaking there was we here in Chicago just had a recent mayoral um, election and part of what was on the ballot, on the ticket, was... Um, uh, public schools in general because of, you know, I think uh, folks, uh, when I think of like these strategies that you talked about, such as, and I'm going to say the wrong name, you called it district what? Secession. District succession, secession. Um, I think about also like the um, folks using charter schools as a way to not um, fund public schools. And that was a big thing um, that was talked about because one of the mayoral candidates went to 
New Orleans and there are no, did you know there are no public schools in New Orleans? I did not know that. Given given the candidate you're talking about, <laughs> I could guess. Yeah. Um, they went and they chartered schooled it up. And so I think like things like that. And so there was an, a talk about like opening public schools and like because uh, Chicago shut down a lot of public schools mm-hmm. um, and then had, as you know, a choice um, um, and things like that. Anyway, but I, I'm just thinking about all these things. Uh, now, when we think about how segregation and mm-hmm. and and inequity are working together um, and hand in hand through certain policies and things mm-hmm. that have happened, I mean, what's interesting too about that is um, this government accountability office mm-hmm. report that came out in 2022 found actually like there is no difference with respect to segregation across the type of school. So whether it's traditional public school, whether it's a charter school, whether it's a magnet school, the segregation is still there. And specifically, if those schools predominantly serve Black and Hispanic students, then they're still underfunded. They're still like, you know, receive less resources. Um, So, you know, you can wrap it up and call it something else in in New Orleans, but Mm. the segregation and, and equities likely are still there too. Um, so I thought I found that really fascinating being a person that lives in Chicago now, not from Chicago, seeing all the different school types, like there's public, there's magnet, oh there's gosh. selective <laughs> enrollment, right? There's gifted programs. Like I, I don't even know all of the different types. So it's interesting to think about how segregation is operating and racism, I guess, largely really is operating in all of these different types of schools, even though we're in the same city. Hmm. For sure. So Nia, you kind of started off this great education, um, pun intended, um, (laughs) with posing a question, I think around like, uh, not hearing much about it. Like, like is, is racism still not a thing or is racism still a thing in education? And it's, I, I appreciate the, perspective you took in kind of informing us uh, around, I heard multiple things. One was history of segregation as it relates to education, but also kind of the current context. And so in the things that I looked at, I was really trying to get at things to counter the narrative that like, hey, here is evidence that racism is no longer in education and so that we could rely on education being the great equalizer. Have you heard of education as the great equalizer before? Yeah, I've heard people say, I've heard people say that or say like, you know, um, especially for people that are poor that, oh, it's poverty. And if you just educate people, then it'll be okay. Mm. You know, Mm. educate them out of poverty. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I, there were two phenomenon that I really wanted to look at. Um, and they, I want us to jump from the, I guess, um, uh, primary and secondary, um, idea of education and jump into the post-secondary, uh, level of education. So, uh, the first phenomenon, do you remember hearing, maybe you do, maybe you don't, around like this idea that black women, um, are like the highest, um, most educated group uh, of, of of folks and most educated demographic. Have, did you ever hear something like that in recent times? I feel like I did hear that. Did we talk about that? No, actually, I think we were talking about Hispanic women ultimately, like they were the fastest growing demographic, but the least paid. Maybe that was our pay, pay gap, uh, wage gap <laughs> podcast. But I have heard that before that we're like, becoming the most educated demographic. Um, if I may, just because we did it earlier, now cue um, gender pay gap, uh, <laughs> another episode <laughs> of Flesh and Bold. I, I think this is just showing right, how connected all these things are um, and how racism is everywhere. It, around, uh, there was a 2020 study that really just honestly uh uh, compiled data um, that was um, from the Department of Education that um, looked at 
the different different enrollment among race and gender and essentially uh what the uh study found essentially um was that when you look exclusively um at undergraduate um education black women account for 63.6 percent of all african-american enrollment um, and even more, Black women uh, are currently earn about two thirds of, uh, as I said, all African American bachelor's degree awards, seventy percent of all master's degrees, and more than sixty percent of all doctorates. Uh, and so, Black women hold a majority of all African American enrollments in law, medical, and dental schools so um this idea that black women um one of the most educated groups uh it's true and especially uh when compared to black people overall um i will say that one uh surprising thing is that uh within data and sources that i tried to find it often uh penned black women I won't say against black men, but it was only an understanding. We only under, understood black women's successes and enrollment by understanding like a deficit in black men, uh, which I think is unfortunate. Um, but, uh, you know, there. when I was set off on this path, and this is one of my issues with research, but when I set off on this path, like I wanted to understand why, like what led to it. Um, this uh, increase in education, this consistent increase in education or to this phenomenon. And oftentimes none of the data honestly really shared that. Instead, um, as it should, it kind of talked about how while black women uh, specifically are making all these strides in enrollment, there is still um, things that we need to consider, one of which, as we talked about in our gender pay gap episode, was how uh, like black women earning uh, higher level degrees still won't make as much as men uh, in general, and especially when we look at uh, by race. But uh, some of the things that, it, that I think are important to note within all of that is the... Uh, teasing out not just black women but also black men in that there are there are high enrollments however black women and black men um make up a high percentage of folks who have some college but no degree right so uh enrollment doesn't necessarily mean graduation and so there are many reasons why folks aren't graduating uh, black folks specifically. And so I want to name a couple of things. Uh, and I think this is so important as we cont continue the inequity talk, because it doesn't just, to me, show up in the idea of lack of opportunity, but it's right. Once people get there, are they being supported? And the simple answer is uh, no. Um, and so um in an article by uh, Porter uh, and, and Bird, they were trying to understand the influences of development on Black women's success in U.S. college uh, by doing um, basically like a meta-analysis. And they found uh, that there were several factors that uh, affected uh, Black women's success in colleges, including trying to navigate education, uh, sense of belonging. I'm going to circle back to that one. Uh, perceptions of institutional support where usually there was a lack of institutional support um uh folks trying to gain education while also combating stereotypes affected whether they're successful or not um and then the need for counter spaces and counter narratives and so counter spaces are those spaces when we think about that could be like affinity groups places together with each other um uh, spaces that they could uh, be in community with each other that sometimes didn't exist and also right those counter narratives being important as they're also battling stereotypes but that sense of belonging I think is important for us to think about because oftentimes we'd put that onus on the individual right like why aren't you ob obtaining 
education why aren't you successful or why aren't you completing the degree and i think that going back to the sense of belonging is if we're asking folks to get to college and then fit in that's not them belonging that's trying to mold them to a white patriarchal uh, elitist right education system and i think about also how the lack of uh, faculty of color are there that um have been shown to have better outcomes for their uh, students of color as well like all these things are connected and tied together the the last thing i just want to share and bring into your attention is uh this idea going back to the fact that Black women, their success, I guess, in an educational enrollment and attainment, how that was pinned against uh, Black men. Uh, when comparing Black women, Black men, white women, and white men to each other, do you know, can you guess who had the lowest high school graduation or equivalency and who had the highest? Uh, among which groups? Uh, black men, black women, white men, and white women. And who had the lowest? Who high had the grade? highest? The lowest and the highest. The lowest is white women, and the highest I would say is black women. You got um, two of the three, or two of one of the two correct. The lowest is white women, and that. Uh, white women 22.6 percent of white women uh are high school graduates or the equivalent and 35.7 percent which is the highest of black men have a high school education or equivalent so that just stood out to me because there's this high percentage of in comparison of black men who are graduating high school, but for whatever reason, we can't get them to the next level. Mm -hmm. And if we do get them to the next level, they are going to college, but many are not completing college. And I think it links back to the culture and the systems and the inequities that exist within the systems. Unfortunately, I feel like I've they, seen that somewhere. Enter. So I'm sad I got it wrong because I feel like I've seen <laughs> seen that study or that statistic somewhere. Man. So what do we think is happening in that translation? Because I'm just even thinking about here in Chicago, how there are a lot of schools that are really, really proud that they get black students, specifically black, um, black youth that are men or you know, boys, however they identify, right, into college, but we don't really know what happens to them after that they after they go. And just anecdotally thinking about our own, you know, close group of friends and family and whatever that have gone to college but not necessarily have gotten a degree and now have, you know, college level debt and not necessarily a degree to show for it. And so do we know what are the the things that black men need to in that transition from high school to college or you know the secondary education to post-secondary yeah so i would say there are a couple things that different some different studies mention and that uh, i've been in discussion so one of the reasons i looked into this is because uh, I have found myself trying to come up with the answer to the question that you just asked me so that we can increase uh, uh, our Black student retention uh, That so that once they get there, they don't leave with just debt. They leave with a degree, right? And so uh, some of those things are similar to what was shared with uh, uh, black uh, around Black women uh, from the study that I shared earlier, such as like sense of belonging, um, combating stereotypes and the idea of stereotype threat that does come up, lack of institutional support um, and the need for counter spaces. But also I think it's lack of representation in curriculum um, that, that often happens, lack of uh, going back to the lack of institutional guidance and an understanding of um, like degrees and majors, but there's a big, like, I think social component that is oftentimes at play that's uh, feeling connected to a community, to mentorship that doesn't always exist. Um, and there is also uh, financial barriers and resources that continue to exist. Um, and I think uh, one of the biggest things that doesn't get mentioned enough is that when 
a big part of college as it's promoted to folks, right, is finding yourself, right? And it's this real individual process. And Black folks are, it's a collectivist culture, right, where we want to care for one another, care and give back to our family. And so oftentimes we're asking folks to cut ties, ties to those folks who we are uh, in relationship with and community with and supporting, but are also supporting uh, us in, in many ways. So oftentimes folks, Black folks specifically, but other uh, students of color too, are forced to make some tough decisions um, and by trying to fit into this like individual um, isolation mode, Uh, which is why in recent years, especially, and I'll say the pandemic has changed everything and decreased enrollment numbers across the U.S. and across demographics. But that's why we see the popularity of things like uh, remote programs. Um, Unfortunately, uh, there was a higher enrollment of uh, students of color in like two-year colleges, but also uh, within the same thing as college becomes more accessible and more needed, um, vulnerable people are vulnerable. And so uh, uh, Black and Latino um, students, Latinx students, are were way more likely than their white counterparts to um, be enrolled in for-profit schools. And so we know the issues that can come with for-profit schools. And I just think about the recent, I think it was a Supreme Court ruling that shared that they, that for-profit schools, no one owed the folks that suffered and got taken advantage of uh, money, right? And so I think of these, all these factors coming together um, and creating our current context, unfortunately. Wow. That's, that's a lot. That's super duper heavy. And I think, you know, it, Definitely helps me sleep at night to know there are people like you in in these roles, right? Like I think when we talk about representation, right, this is one aspect is like belonging for other students to look at you or other people like in similar roles as you in these offices of like equity or multicultural affairs or whatever that people can look and see themselves. I think that's one aspect. But then I think the other aspect of having people like you in the in these roles that understand the historical context, but also are thinking about the solutions and barriers to getting people to that graduation day are equally important. It's not enough to stick somebody who looks <laughs> looks like, you know, us or looks like the students um, in these roles, but to have a fundamental and profound like desire to make things better so that people can actually walk across that stage for graduation and understand, you know, the kind of um, building blocks that are needed at these institutions that typically are predominantly white or historically white or whatever, um, so that people not only want to come, but feel supported while they're there um, and also can, can use that education, right, to go on and do whatever else they would like to do. So that's that's really important and that's heavy. That's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot of stuff. Yeah. Uh I appreciate your kind words and shout out to all my folks in this work. We are here together, right? Um but I also want to, you know, I started by sharing. I was really looking into some of the counter narratives to what we know about uh, the folks most impacted by inequity. And I just wanted to also share, and I'll make this share brief that, um, because one of the things I was surprised by when I got to my institution was when the lack of black folks, but also more so, I think, very interesting, which I did not realize because I was never on like admission side and the admin side of uh, academia was uh, our high enrollment of uh, Latinx folks, right? Because we're like at 24%. And uh, my previous institution that I used to work at was a Hispanic serving institution and minority serving institution. And my doctoral program, which I was just at, was uh, a Hispanic serving institution, University of Central Florida. And so I was, I I mean, I, I, I guess I should have seen it coming, but I really felt like I um, sought those places out intentionally, which I did. But um, when I looked into the data, um, uh, Hispanic enrollment at U.S. four um, at U.S. four year colleges has reached all time level highs. 
um, specifically. Um, they, uh, unfortunately, Hispanic servant institutions uh, took a big hit during the pandemic, um, but they're in the, uh, like there are, I think are around 500 schools that are classified as a Hispanic servant institution, meaning their enrollment is at least 25% um, Latinx. And uh, so once again, I kind of tried to look into see like, yo, what created this boom? This is awesome. Like, how can we recreate it? And unfortunately, I think research just is so entrenched in the deficit model that many didn't share. They, 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 well, I think in part, part wanted to shine a light, like, yes, these numbers are increasing, but there's still work to be done and that things that we should be aware of. And once again, it went back to. Uh, the experience of folks when they're on um, the actual campus and a lack of sense of belonging or specifically for like first generation Latinx folks facing uh, unique cultural, uh, linguistic and socioeconomic challenges uh, and being um, English language learners uh, and things like that. Uh, And so I go back to it's not just a lack of opportunity, but once folks get to the to, to a college or a institution, right? Are they prepared to create a sense of belonging and are folks able to support the students? And currently it seems like the answer is no. Mm. Um, and I think this is once again, a reflection of inequity and in who these systems unfortunately were originally made for. It's so interesting um, that you bring up that point because, you know, in some ways I feel like COVID-19 like taught us a lot of lessons for what to do and what not to do, like how to support people um, kind of across different domains of life, right? Like, so allowing remote work for people that were able to do remote work, but expanding, you know, inequities for that people that couldn't, right? But trying to think about what actually did support um, families, what did support students, what didn't support students. Um, I'm going to just briefly shout out, there's a, um, a new report that just came out that I'm happy that I was a part of called The Long-Term Effects of the COVID-19 Pandemic on Children and Families. It's mm-hmm. by the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine. And we're going to um, present a talk in a few days. And I think what's really interesting, I, I did a piece on education, which, as you know, I don't do education. <laughs> so I was interesting to see, like, what, you know, actually how, how were schools impacted? And what I love about... Um, mm-hmm what the report found and what we worked on was that they actually elicit what schools helped, what schools were thriving in the pandemic where their students actually Mm. were doing better and what schools were, you know, just like were, were supporting their students and families. And I find that it's a lot of what you said. It's schools that focused on student and family well-being, right? Like that was like primary Mm. and central. Like it's not exactly what you're talking about because I know we're talking about kind of post a little bit pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. But it was like distribution of meals and support making, you know, social Mm -hmm. networks and support to social service agencies, like in the midst of the pandemic, like they cared about them as people and as um, like a community, Mm -hmm. not just like, are you coming to school, what your grades are like and so on, but also like what technology gaps do you have? Do you have access to learning? Do you need a device? Do you need um, internet? Because you don't have good access to internet. You can't afford internet and um, adapting their institutional practice to fit the student and not saying, well, this is just how we do it. So if you can't assimilate too bad, And so I thought that was really, really interesting in that in some ways we're regressing to to back before the pandemic, even though we've learned at least some lessons of what to do and how to support students in all kinds of domains of learning. And of course, like throughout life too, but specifically around education. And so how can we take what we've learned and like continue to implement it, even though we're not in the height, right, of the pandemic that we were in two years ago or three years ago, right? So there are are things we know that is helpful and work, but yet, you know, we don't mm-hmm. necessarily center those students and center those um, the experiences of minoritized people, of people that are in poverty, right? People that are kind of on the margins, even though 
we do know there are th- things that can be helpful or should be helpful for these students. Snaps, just snaps, 100%. Yeah, and what you're sharing, uh, it's so interesting. I was having a talk with a new colleague today uh, who wanted to reach out to me because she knew I was doing DEI stuff and she was sharing about like, how we have the ability to innovate. And I think as you shared, like the pandemic, uh, we used to very much so act, ask uh, students to adapt to the institution. And it sounds like um, the institutions that were thriving, uh, their students did well because the (laughs) institution adapted to the needs of the students, right? And I think we can do that more. And I think hopefully that's what the future of our education um, could look like. And what I can imagine when we start to center those folks who are most vulnerable and marginalized, it will uh, impact us all for the better. This, this, all, all this wonderful talk about where we're going still makes me think about some of the things that you were sharing earlier about like where we've been. And, and I'm just thinking of how those parts about like where we've been, how it's eerie, eerily makes me think about our current context, about the attack on teaching these histories, but also the attack on these DI efforts. So I, I just want to throw it back to you. Like, can you give us some uh, more framing or knowledge around past, present and future in those things? Yeah, you know, I started talking about a case that was in 1938 um, and then alluded to, you know, 1954, the landmark Brown versus Board, but there were some cases that also happened in between. More recently in 2018, I was so surprised to see, but there was a lawsuit that was filed in New Jersey because of deeply segregated schools. They were described as some of the most segregated schools in the nation. And that lawsuit was filed Mm -hmm. on the 64th anniversary of Brown versus Board of Ed. And I mean, we're not talking about Mm -hmm. a little bit, like when these schools are segregated, we're talking about major money. So white school districts receive 23 billion more dollars compared to school districts that serve black and Hispanic kids. Billion, like B, billion. Billion, you know, what the it's, it's ridiculous. The average non-white school district receives like $2,226 less than a white school district. In New York, New Jersey, California are some of the states where white districts get more funding than those serving um, school districts of color. And there are 18 more states on the list. Like there, it's a lot, it's a lot of money. And- you know, I think that that is that's so inequitable. We're talking about two thousand more, you know, that a student receives just because they're in a white school district, which is wild. Um, and the other one, the other case I wanted us to circle back to, it's a little bit less well known, I guess, to people outside of the education world. So maybe it's something that you know a lot about, but for me, it was new. So you know the. Brown versus Board said that, you know, there's no such thing as separate but equal. Inherently, if they're separate, they're likely unequal. And so Brown versus Board like totally ripped that open and said that's not constitutional anymore. However, there was a big case um, in 1969 um, or a little bit before, I think, 1969, where they said, okay, well, whose job is it to desegregate these schools? Whose job is it to desegregate these schools? So prior to that, the federal government worked really hard in the South for progress, for uh, desegregation, and it worked its way to the North. But we know what happens with white rage and white voters did not like that at all. Like they did not want to desegregate their schools. And again, we focus so much on the South that we forget the North has its own like sort of history as well. And so this um, this kind of push for desegregation and who's responsible for it actually propelled Richard Nixon to the White House in 1969. And he was he appointed four new Supreme Court justices. So when they actually heard the oral arguments in this case, Milkian versus Bradley, you can imagine where it went. Essentially, educational leaders in Michigan and the city of Detroit were sued 
for policies that helped to segregate Detroit public schools. And two thirds of the students were black while the suburbs were almost all white. And so, you know, obviously racist housing kept black families inside of the city. They couldn't flee to the suburbs because of all the covenants and things that existed um, in those rich suburbs. And at the same time, the state was pumping money to these new suburban schools. Again, we called it district secession. Remember that? So a lower court ruled and said the only meaningful way to desegregate Detroit um, was to tear down all these district lines and bus students, so black Detroit students, into the suburb schools. And 53 like school districts were unsurprisingly very mad about that and fought that ruling. So essentially, they went all the way up um, to the Supreme Court and they essentially said, you know, it's not our fault. Like segregation was here before we got here. We didn't intend to do this. Like, come on, we did this um, and we weren't being malicious. And the federal courts were not allowed to interfere and do what we do, what um, you think we should do. Like, this is just this just happened, right? It's not our fault. So the question really was, should the federal courts do what they did in the South and step in in the North, specifically in Detroit and Michigan, and force these communities to share their schools? And so it's um, it's not surprising that Detroit still suffers um, when they look to its neighbors, Gross Point and other wealthy suburbs, that they have some of the most segregated school districts because they weren't able to say, you know, who was responsible. Essentially, they found that, like, you know, there's no one really responsible to desegregate these schools. And so it, it continues to perpetuate these disparities today. And we didn't even get into, so, um, conversation for another day, but segregation within schools and how certain students are tracked for certain classes like AP and honors classes um, and gifted classes and how other students in the same school, you know, are tracked for not those classes. And so even though we're talking about segregation with respect to geography, racial ethnic lines, SES lines, tracking even exists within these quote unquote integrated schools um, within, you know, their segregation that's within those. So it's not all all beautiful just because your school is integrated. You have to dig and look at the data too. So lots to unpack here. Oh my. This, this is already a part two. Um, Nia, maybe our first episode of season three could be about segregation in schools because, you know, we finna go on summer break. <laughs> Are you ready for a break already? Wow, the face, though. Baby girl, it's, <laughs> it's May. <laughs> it is May. It is. June is my month. June, June, is, June is for Black queers. It's uh, Pride Month and Juneteenth, baby. I'm, I'm, I, y'all. I'm going on sabbatical. I see y'all back in fall. <laughs> Live your absolute best life. And well, and did okay. <laughs> okay, so tell our listeners what they need to do then. Well, I guess until we uh, see y'all until next fall, please be sure to stay. Bold. Bold.